Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The story is just the data globally is fantastic. Whether it's the United States, Europe, or Asia, could it get much better? John Silvio, Wells Fargo Chief Economist, joins us now here in New York City. John, always great to catch up with you. Thank you. Is this peak growth, can it get any better? Well, I think the peak growth for this year, 2018, uh, but I don't think it gets better and it's not sustainable going into 2019 and 2020. I think you've got a big jump here. You've got a good gain in equipment. Uh, spending in the United States. Housing starts has improved also in the United States. And as you just mentioned, uh, the European economies have surprised us in the last year, and they continue to surprise us, but they'll settle down uh, to to a more longer-term trend. But it is good to see those positives. John, what do you see as more sustainable? What's happening in Europe or what is happening in the United States? Well, I think for for more sustainable, I would go with Europe. Yeah, I think there are, there have been some changes there. They continue to do fundamental reform for different nations, and I think they've got uh, this story together with respect to trade. I am more concerned, Jonathan, with trade, um, as Tom and I had discussed earlier today. Uh, we, you know, what are we actually going to do to NAFTA? Do we understand the importance of NAFTA in the United States? So I like the European sustainability. Do you see reason for there to be enthusiasm in the equity market with the Dow set to go through 25,000 today for the first time ever? The S&P north of 2,700 yesterday for the first time ever. We keep grinding out all-time highs. Does it make sense to you, John? Uh, right now, it does, because you, you've gotten uh, changes in fiscal policy. You've got the PMIs that have done really well. Sustainable gains in employment means the consumer continues to move forward. And uh, you have relative peace in, in, in the world. Good morning, everyone. John Farrow and Tom Keene. Thrilled you're with us. And we've got some really constructive news here. This is the micro news that's made John Sylvia's career, and particularly with his work at the National Association for Business and Pharmaceutical uh, Economics. (laughs) Walgreens, Boots. What's Boots, John? Boots is um, like Dwayne Reed here. Okay, so it's it's like British Walgreens. Yes, so you go and you can buy like um, what you need for the bathroom to have a wash and brush your teeth. I just had the December teeth brush. Uh, Walgreens boots <laughs> out with important numbers. And, and the, the one headline I want to, with their upgrade, the one headline I want to mention, John Sylvia, which folds into your economics, retail pharmacy comp sales 4.7%, which is away from Fed mumbo jumbo. Nominal GDP shows corporate indications of picking up. Absolutely. And uh, for a traveler who does go to London at least twice a year, uh, Boots is essential for all those little things. uh, What is this, a plate plate promotion? I've got to say, Boots, honestly, Boots is fantastic, Tom. (laughs) It is fantastic. When I go into the airport at JFK and I don't see a Boots, there is a Boots at every airport in the UK and it's got everything you need. Thank you for that important information, (laughs) Mr. Farrell. But it shows you consumer strength. That's what it's telling you, that people are going into those stores and actually buying things. Go ahead. So I'm working with Dr. Hassett and the President of the United States, and I'm saying all this doom and gloom, look at the animal spirit. How much bigger will the animal spirit be? Do we go from the gloom of 4% nominal GDP? Can you get to a 6% nominal? No, I can't get 
get to six percent. Maybe someone else can get there. Uh, the president but, would do that. Well, but I'll I'll give you two and a half percent GDP. Let's say a year from now, and I'll give you two two and a quarter percent. So okay, maybe so four five. four and a half to five is six percent is a little okay. bit too much. But these corporate Honeywell, Walgreens, and many others, I'm beginning to see the lift in you know organic revenue oh, growth absolutely. or whatever. Yeah, I mean, we can see it. I mean, for the last four or five years, it's been economic right. growth at around two, two and a quarter. Now we're moving up to two and a half, maybe two and three quarters. That's good. Give us a briefing before we go to Jim Glassman and Bill Gross tomorrow. Dr. Sylvia, give us a briefing on what we need to know about the immediacy of wage growth. Are wages actually going up adjusted for inflation? Uh, yes, that's an important point, Tom, that's overlooked. It's real wages, but total real compensation has really improved because, once again, people care about their benefits, particularly health care benefits. Compensation is not part of the unemployment number. That's within the uh, other I know, economic data. I know. It's published Explain separately. to our audience how that's published. Well, it, it's published, again, by the federal government in the United States, but it, it takes into consideration the pensions, takes into consideration health care, life insurance, disability insurance, all those other things that, Tom, are not taxed. So the wages are taxed, and workers have realized over the last 30 or 40 years, if I'm getting the compensation through insurance that is yeah. not taxed, then my total income actually goes up. It's a really good point. John, before we let you go, can we get to the economics of cold weather it's snowing outside. Tom doesn't want to talk about the hysteria. Oh, but Q1 well, after Q1 after Q1 after Q1 in the United States fair, of America, fair. we have had soft growth after soft growth, and economists we, 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 continually and miss the story. To your important now, observation, what we have around it, John Farrow, is a big asterisk. Every first quarter, in our ute, it wasn't like that. Now we've got this asterisk. And, and it feels like quarter. we're going to do it all over again. And Q1. we are. How many economists, including yourself, John, are going to come out over the next couple of weeks and say, we're downgrading our Q1 estimates because of the weather? I would say the majority will, again. Because this, again, when you're impacting New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, southern New England, that is a huge economic powerhouse in the United States, you know, as as. Tom was mentioning earlier. If you have an earthquake in San Francisco that's a minor earthquake, okay. But if it's significant, okay. that economic okay. impact is significant. we got one minute left with you. Nobody gotcha. cares about this. How do the Boston Red Sox <laughs> respond to the New York Yankees? The Yankees have gone. Aaron Judge is going to lead off. They've got this guy from Miami, this piece of meat from Miami. It's gonna, they're going to win 140 baseball games. How does Team Red Sox respond? Uh, pitch around the... Opening uh, pitch, eight intentional walks per game. Uh, eight, eight intentional walks per game. Just walk them and deal with all the rest of the lineup. You don't see any strategic thing like in a case of Narragansett Lager beer or anything. <laughs> Nary's like that. coming back. Nary is coming back. It's coming. It's an entre the entre entrepreneurial spirit of New England, right? It is. John Sylvia, thank you so much. With Wells Fargo now living in the Carolinas. Last conversation with the Admiral from Tufts Fletcher School was most distressing. James Trevitas has been a student of our Navy, of our military, and now teaches students on international relations at Tufts. Uh, Admiral Trevitas, wonderful to have you with us uh, this morning. Our men are in danger, our sailors are in danger, our women are in danger off Busan, South Korea, where it's a chilly 35 degrees this morning. We've got boats out at sea. 
uh, doing what our military does, show the flag, etc. How damaged are they by the silliness, the discourse of Washington? I think they are able to tune it out, Tom, and that's kind of the good news. First of all, particularly our warships at sea uh, don't gather around and watch CNN 24-7. They're so busy. They've got contacts in the ocean around them. They've got planes overhead. They're tracking missiles yeah. flying. They, they are not focused on Washington. And if they did, I think they would still tune it out because they have that kind of ethos that says, we're out here, we stand on the wall to protect our nation. We're not going to get caught up in the day-to-day. So on that score, I feel pretty good. Give us your update on the adultness of the adults. How are General Kelly, how are General Mattis, and other adults of Washington doing this morning? Uh, well, I would say on a scale of 1 to 10, they have a job that's about a 13. Uh, this is a tough uh, operation to effectively put guardrails around a presidency that is too impulsive, too erratic, too unpredictable. I would say they're still in the game, particularly the two you mentioned, our four-star U.S. Marine Corps generals, seen a lot of combat. Uh, you know, they've seen worse. They'll they'll stay with the program. We also ought to be concerned about uh, three-star general H.R. Uh, McMaster, our national security advisor. He's just done a very good job getting out a new national security strategy, which is actually shockingly, shockingly normal. So I think that team is doing pretty well. The one to watch that I'm worried about is Rex Tillerson uh, over at State. I, I think his stock is very low. I think his morale is very low. I know his department's morale is very low. I suspect we'll see that change early in this year. Adam, are you worried about Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, or are you worried about the State Department? Uh, The latter. Um, Secretaries come and go. The department is a generational operation. You have to bring in young Foreign Service officers who are willing to devote themselves for 10, 20, 30 years to create that cadre of professional ambassadors at the far end. State Department is down 50%, 50 yeah. 50% in applications this year. That's shocking. There is a concern that the State Department is being gutted. There's a lot being written about it and reported about it over the last 12 months. Key individuals that should be in key areas of the world representing the United States no longer there. Admiral, what are the consequences of that? Are they immediate? Are they around the corner? Or are they slow burning over several decades? You know, they're all three, and I'll I'll give you a practical example of each. Um, In the immediate term, uh, what this does is it overweights us in the military instrument. Believe me, we've got all the generals and admirals we need. Um, If we don't have ambassadors to kind of put balance, our program overweights toward hard power. In the, if you will, medium term, we don't have the expertise on the ground in the long-term diplomatic efforts in the Balkans in Afghanistan. And long-term, as I said, we lose that cadre of professional ambassadors 20, 30 years from now. So I'm very worried about State Department. Admiral Stavitas, were you ever on a PT boat? I, I never was assigned to the crew of one time, but of course I've been on them many, many times all over, particularly in the Caribbean, for example, doing counter-narcotics. I mean, folks, it resonates so much, of course, with President Kennedy. I think of at close quarters, PT boats in the United States Navy, Robert Bulkley's uh, a classic text. Admiral Stavitas, here's the latest tweet, I guess, on PT boats by the President of the United States. 
with all of the failed, quote, experts, unquote, he doesn't mention you, Admiral, weighing in, does anybody really believe that talks and dialogues would be going on between North and South Korea right now if I wasn't firm, strong, and willing to commit our total, quote, might, unquote, against the North? Fools, but talks are a good thing. What is, what is an amateur like Tom Keene or President Trump or John Farrell, what do we know about might? You lived it. What What is the might of our military? How would you lecture civilians? Well, first of all, I think this is part of the pattern of a president who thinks he's the reason that uh, airlines are not crashing out of the sky. Um, it, it's just he is living in a fantasy world. And uh, I would say that the might of the United States is certainly part of this, but the real driver of the chain of events we're in the middle of is Kim Jong-un. And he is the one that is right. a step or two ahead of us tactically. So I think the president ought to get some balance in his rhetoric, rely on the professionals around him, uh, build a coherent deterrent, use cyber offensively, put up maritime interception operations. He's done none of that. Um, so far, what we see is a chain of events driven by a young, unpredictable dictator right. in the North, and our own unpredictable president needs to up his game if we're going to succeed diplomatically in resolving right. this. Uh, John, on the, on the plane flight back from uh, the old world, thank you, British Air, for the great uh, flight, <laughs> I watched one of the recent Churchill epics. Yeah. And there was yeah. Churchill being lectured by the general from the United States in a kind way, Dwight David Eisenhower, about, excuse me, sir, you're a civilian. I mean, John Farrell, this this is not just about America. No, it's, it's not. about every it's, institution. It's, it's about the world response and global mm -hmm. institutions. But, Admiral, you've touched on something really important, and that's the overweight of hard power, the overdependence on hard power. Yep. Is this an administration that you think fails to understand soft power or is it an administration that has said, well, it hasn't worked for the last 20 years to deal with the threat of North Korea, so why should we continue down this path? I think the former, John, and if we think about where we've used the mix of hard and soft power, that's where we succeed, and that's the subtlety that this administration thus far has not grasped. For example, in the Balkans, we used hard power initially, but it's been soft power, the economics, the private-public partnering, the development aid that's brought the Balkans where it is. Same in Colombia, for example. Same in Sri Lanka. It's that balance of hard and soft power, and that, back to your earlier question, is yeah. why I worry about a lack of a State Department in the case of the United States, where we don't have influencers who drive us toward balancing hard power when you need it, but soft power for the long game to win in these scenarios. I'm going to assume it's not the Philippines, 1944. You're not going to line up the Missouri 60 miles offshore of North Korea and bomb them. What is a quote-unquote might attack that the president would envision? I mean, how do you attack North Korea? I, I don't understand. Tactically, how do you attack? We, you cannot conduct an attack that does not escalate into a war on the peninsula, which will cause, at a minimum, a million, but somewhere in the range of two to four million casualties, mm -hmm. Tom. And that's because of the geography where Seoul sits, right under the guns of North Korea, and because we have a, a dictator in the North who already has tactical nuclear weapons that he can use in the immediate context well, of the conflict. So uh, any kind of military response is highly, highly fraught. 
Admiral, thank you so much. Here endeth the lecture on might this morning with Admiral Stravitas of Tufts in the Fletcher School. Alessia DeLongis joins us now, Portfolio Manager over at Oppenheimer Funds. As we see, uh, what did you say, Tom? Some warmth on the tape. Futures positive, up five points on the S&P 500. Dow futures up 86 with 25K in sight, north of 2,700 on the S&P 500 yesterday. Alessio, is this as good as it gets with the data on both sides of the Atlantic looking very, very nice? Good morning, Tom and John. Uh, yes, I mean, we, we couldn't um, wish for a better global economic outlook. I mean, we've seen the, the recent data literally over the last couple of days, especially with the business surveys, such as the PMIs and the ISM survey, really uh, suggesting a continuation of, of this very strong momentum in the developed markets, but also we're seeing good news in the emerging world. So we continue to see what looks like the, the best global growth synchronization, uh, the best global growth acceleration we have seen in over a decade. So peak growth, when do we start talking about peak growth, Alessio? That, that's a very important point because we, um, we begin to see, particularly in the U.S., um, the flattening of the yield curve, uh, um, which and we're very early stages, but that flattening of the yield curve is a reminder, of course, that the Fed has been tightening rates now for a while, albeit at a, at a gradual pace. Uh, I think it's still early to talk about um, growth peak. Um, we, we seem to be in a solid footing throughout the first half of the year. And, you know, of course, the economy always goes through some, some soft patches, but I think we, we can't really start worrying about uh, a serious yeah. downturn for at least, uh, at least another year. What is your call on dollar? I mean, it's really away from your remit, but I want to go there. I mean, you look at dollar dynamics, and, and John and I saw a lot of different opinions at the end of the year. Is it a flow story with money flowing into euro, money flowing into the American system as well? Well, you know, the, the, the dollar question is a, is a particularly interesting one, given the anomalies that we've seen last year. The, we expect the dollar to continue to, uh, to, to continue the weakening trend that, that has experienced in 2017, albeit maybe at a more gradual pace and some more uh, range-bound price dynamics. But why that dollar weakening? Because the first question is, why is the dollar weakening when the Fed is raising rates? Uh, there has been almost an unprecedented disconnect between uh, rate differentials and currency performance. And you see it particularly with the euro last year. We expect that to continue somewhat. This environment is very reminiscent to me of what we saw in the early 2000s, say 2002 to 2004, where despite the Fed raising rates and the ECB not raising rates, the euro strengthened the dollar weakened. Why? We are seeing that late cycle dynamics for the U.S., where the current account differential between the U.S. and the Eurozone is extremely wide. The Eurozone and Japan have very wide current account surpluses, and, and those are some of the structural flows that you, Tom, are referring to, some of the structural flows in the background that are supporting uh, foreign currencies. On top of it, we believe that the biggest driver of capital flows will be the equity side. We continue to, to expect yeah, our performance of European and emerging market growth uh, versus U.S. growth, and that typically leads U.S. capital, U.S. investors to deploy uh, capital into foreign markets, which we know is typically uh, unhedged. 
Alessio, there's a point where bond market dynamics really and abruptly folds into stock market dynamics. Review for us, how does that work? Rising yields, how does it fold into stock market effects? Um, I would say uh, there is uh, two, three channels here to to keep in mind. There is the the and and bond markets affect equity markets with a with a long um, lead. Uh, the uh, the first and most important channel, in my opinion, is the is the tightening of financial conditions that is represented first and foremost by the flattening of the yield curve, right? So as the as the yield curve flattens gradually, that disincentivizes the uh, banks from uh, credit creation over time, right? They borrow in the short end and they lend at the long end, uh, plus a credit spread. As as the availability of the term premium over time in the long term um, gets reduced banks of course have less of an incentive to to lend to extend credit and most importantly in some cases to even roll over credit so what happens is that towards the end of the cycle if banks stop rolling over their credit highly lever companies uh, towards the end of the cycle find themselves yeah. with an economy that is slowing and with uh, credit not being rolled over and that's how then it translates I, I would say the transmission mechanism is from the yield curve to the bond market and credit spreads and then eventually to the stock market. But Alessio, that's not happening yet because deposit beta is so low for many of these banks. The the interest that they pay on deposits to depositors is incredibly low and hasn't been picking up. So the net interest margin, despite the flat yield curve, has been picking up because they're passing on the higher rates over at the Fed to loans that they create. Do you see that dynamic staying in place over the next couple of years? Really low deposit beta, and that essentially means that net interest margins at banks hold up. Yes, and you see some some continuation of that for quite some time. And actually, if you look, Tom, you were alluding to the the two stands, but if we actually look at the three month to ten year, we're still about a hundred, hundred and ten basis points. Um, so, and also to the point that John was making, so three month rates are are much lower than, than two-year rates. And I think for the purpose of the t- credit transmission, the three-month to 10-year yeah. is more indicative. Furthermore, I would say that a first confirmation of that transmission mechanism is to be seen in lending standards. And at the moment, all the Fed surveys show that lending standards remain very generous, both for large firms and uh, small firms. Yeah. So that's where we are not worried yet about should, the flattening of the yield curve. John, should we dazzle Bloomberg Radio? audience and put the threes tens chart out on Twitter please do I think please we should do, do that. you should absolutely do that while you're I'm doing a, that I I'm gonna ask... make the horizontal line that beautiful Oppenheimer fund there we screen go. for Alessio I, I'm gonna ask Alessio an important question now um, we've just talked about really strong data a really decent ADP report we had RSM yesterday the strongest since I believe 2004 yet we're reconciling that with a flatter yield curve why is it only the front end of the curve that's adjusting to a better economy why are we not seeing yields pick up further down the curve alessio uh because the three month is really controlled by the fed the 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 two-year part of the curve is really driven by market participants anticipating fed hikes the three month is really ultimately the fed funds rate and the it's a reflection of the fact that the fed is hiking at a much much more gradual pace than historically we have seen with this strength in the economic data and the reason being as we all know the the puzzle with the inflation picture the latest fed minutes revealed again the puzzle that the fed is facing they 
have clearly upgraded their growth projections, even incorporated the the coming fiscal expansion, yet they have no revised higher their inflation numbers. They are dealing with this puzzle. Alessio, we've got to leave it there. Alessio DeLongas, thank you so much for the Oppenheimer Funds. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 